Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon to everyone on this Friday. We are very pleased to welcome you to a very special airing of our show, <coughs> America's Community Voices Network uh, podcast, hosted by myself, Ronald Brookins, and my brother, Donald Brookins. Our very special guest today is the newly elected Florida State Representative for District 761, uh, Ed, Edwin Narain. Uh, before we bring uh, the representative on, let's give you some information about him. Uh, since his election, uh, during the last election cycle, uh, he has made himself and distinguished himself within the House by being elected as the head of the Minority Caucus, the first time ever a freshman has been elected to that position. He was also the chief sponsor of a bill, House Bill 201, known as the Arthur Green Act, and this bill resulted in uh, uh, from a uh, from an from from an incident that occurred where a gentleman who was experiencing a diabetic episode died, uh, and officers who were stopping him because he was driving erratically did not recognize those symptoms and could not get him medical treatment. Um, he was also recently awarded uh, a special honor by USF, uh, the 2015 George Russell. Uh, USF Kente Award, and we're going to talk to him about uh, that also. But uh, we can start and say, welcome, Representative Narain. How are you today, sir? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show today. Really appreciate it. Well, well, we really appreciate you joining us today. So let's get started. I always start my interviews with this question. Can you please tell our audience how uh, young Ed Narain became Florida State House Representative Edwin Narain? Well, uh, it's a good question. Uh, sometimes I look at and I say, well, I don't know how this happened, <laughs> but for the grace of God, uh, you know, truly when I first moved to Tampa in 1994, uh, the attending University of South Florida, I got really involved with a lot of student organizations, ended up becoming president of the student body. And, um, you know, I just always found a way to serve the community, whether it was with the Children's Board or the Head Start Policy Council. Anything anybody asked me to do, I'd go out there and, and throw my all into it if it was going to help somebody else. And a couple of years ago, people said, you know, there's an open seat coming up and you really should consider running. And I thought about it. I prayed about it, asked my wife what she thought. And, you know, the family was extremely supportive. And, you know, here I am today as the representative for District 61. Can you please tell us, uh, you sort of answered this question, but I want to know, uh, so this was part, partly due to opportunity. Uh, you had people encouraging, encouraging you to seek an open seat. Um, before you were encouraged to do that, had you ever considered uh, seeking public office at all? No. You know, my experience at the University of South Florida, it was a good one, but it was also one that made me realize that, you know, public service is a sacrifice. And so, you know, being fairly young and starting a family and getting married, I wanted to make sure that if I ever got back into politics, I was doing something that would provide me with the right uh, work-life balance. And the state legislature is supposed to be part-time, but it really is like a full-time job, um, especially because we're going back for special session in a, in a, in a few weeks. Um, but that presented the best opportunity. Um, you know, city council, county commission, all those positions, they're great positions, but they require a full-time commitment all the time. And your family sometimes is, is sacrificed for those positions. So this was a good way to get my feet wet. It also matched the educational background that I have, having received my law degree from Stetson. So uh, I'm really excited about being a representative. We're doing some good work up there when we get to work. And, uh, you know, I think this is the right, the right match of my skills and the right match for my family. Can you please tell our audience about 
what your goals are during this what what occurred during this first session, and especially for the uh, special session that's coming up. What are your goals? What do you want to accomplish? Well, um, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, our priority bill became the Arthur Green Jr. Act to assist law enforcement with being able to recognize the difference between someone having a diabetic emergency and someone who was under the influence of drugs or alcohol. And uh, getting that bill passed was really, I mean, it was such an experience working with Senator Tom Lee, who um, happens to be a Republican um, from the area. I don't look at parties so much as I look at the the heart of a person and and what they're willing to do. And Senator Lee was the perfect match to uh, run the companion bill in the Senate. But, you know, my immediate goal was to get that bill passed, which we were able to do before a session abruptly closed. Um, But I'm very focused on economic development for our communities. Um, You see what's happening all across the country in African-American communities as it relates to police brutality. A lot of the outcry that you hear from people is a result of the fact that there are no real opportunities in our communities anymore. Um, You don't have the small businessman who's willing to hire a couple of kids after school and give them a chance at a job. Um, instead, you saw a lot of those businesses kind of move away from our communities if they even exist at, at all. And, and people that don't have transportation or ed- ed- educational opportunities, for that matter, um, just are not finding jobs. Uh, the jobs numbers came out today. Unemployment in our communities is still at 9.6%, even though the national average is at 46 so we have a ways to go, and, and that's one of my focuses in the state legislature is to fi- find programs to help fund minority and small businesses in our communities that we can grow and put people to work with. Um, as for the special session, i got to tell you, the, the number one focus for me is, is finding a way to see the expansion of Medicaid in the state budget. We have until July 1st to get a budget passed. Otherwise, we're looking at a historic, uh, unprecedented government shutdown in the state of Florida, which nobody wants. But at the same time, the Senate and the House are about $4 billion apart, and it's all because the Senate has a great plan that would expand Medicaid, and not in the traditional sense, and I can explain more on that later, but it would cover 800,000 Floridians uh, that are what you would consider the working poor, people who make less than 138%. They're above 138%, I should say, of the poverty line, and they're making anywhere from $16,000 or less per year. So to cover those people, I think, is not just a financial issue. It's a moral issue. So when I get back to Tallahassee on June 1st, I'll continue to make the argument for a state budget that has the expansion of Medicaid in it. Well, hello, sir. This is Donald Brookins, and I just want to commend you on your efforts so far. Um, Thank you. With with regard to to the expansion of Medicare, um, Medicaid, Medicaid, pardon me, Um. I think it's important, one of the reasons why I think it's important that we get that expansion in Florida because it provides access to health care and it gives everybody quality access to health care. Um, and you had said that that's one of the things that you're looking forward to in the special session. But still, when we talk about health care, I want to talk about that um, that act, that bill that you sponsored, uh, mm-hmm. House Bill 201, the Arthur Green Act, um, tell us how, how you got involved in it and, and, and how, how you uh, championed that issue in the state legislature. Well, I'll, I'll share with you that uh, Lena Young Green is a friend of mine, you know, over here in the Tampa Heights area. And um, I don't know if many people know this, but she worked in the legislature for Senator James Hardrick, who was the first state senator from um, this area, which is current Senate, Senate District 19. 
and she served the legislature for 18 years. And unfortunately, when this incident happened last year, um, she started to, to think about what could be done, you know, like where was the miss? How could we prevent this from happening again? So she took her mourning and something that should have been a period of personal crisis and started to think about other people. And that's when she came to me and said, Ed, I'm going to help you get elected, and when you get elected, I have this idea. And so she gave me the idea for the training, and we did the research, and we found that um, there weren't too many states that had anything like this on the books. Um, we saw something that Philadelphia had in place, and uh, immediately we got involved. We started doing the research. We contacted TPD. We contacted the mayor. We reached out to the Florida Sheriff's Association, the Police Benevolent Association, and everybody else, uh, you know, FDLE, everybody got on, involved and said, we want to help because, you know, the gap is not with new officers. It's with existing officers. They don't have this as part of their continuing ed, and we want to make this a, a possibility. So um, in lobbying a lot of my peers, what I found was there were people who used to be in law enforcement that had similar situations. And, uh, you know, one representative, Clovis Watson, Jr., um, out of Alachua, when he was an officer, actually had the exact same scenario happen, but he was able to recognize the situation and was able to save a lady's life by getting her a piece of candy. And so when he heard my story and Mr. Green's story, um, you know, immediately he says, whatever I have to do to help. You're talking about 29 million Americans that have diabetes, another 80 million that have prediabetes in this country. So everybody, with almost 400 million Americans, everybody knows somebody that has diabetes or is suffering from it or potentially will suffer from it in the future. So this is the type of legislation that's going to have an impact nationally when other states start to copy it. So I was brought in as just a mouthpiece. I played a very small part in, you know, lining up everything legislatively and getting the votes and getting this thing done. Um, it's unfortunate it took a circumstance like this uh, for this type of legislation to get passed. But I'm so proud to be the person that was able to bring this to the legislature, and, and I'm glad to bring a little bit of peace to the family. Uh, Representative Narain, um we're going to shift a little bit, and let's talk about sure. Uh, what recently happened with your being elected uh, as a freshman uh, to lead the Legislative Minority Caucus. Uh, tell us about your duties and your goals and your objectives in that position. i got to tell you, it was an honor. Um, you know, I didn't come to Tallahassee thinking I was going to run for anything else. You know, my, my whole focus was to represent the district and do the best that I could by the people that elected me. But a, a number of my peers came to me and said, you know, Ed, we really – believe that you'd be the right person to lead our caucus, and uh, we'd love for you to consider running for the caucus of the, the Black uh, black President Caucus Chair. And um, I thought about it. I prayed about it. And uh, the more people that I talked to, they said, absolutely, you should do it. I threw my name in the hat, and um, I was elected. And um, in the beginning, you said I was the first. I think the first person as a freshman to lead the Black Caucus was um, Frederica Wilson, who's now in the United States uh, Congress, and I think I'm the second person to do it. But as I share with everybody, you know, I'm not in anything for titles. Um, I really want to see progress. You know, one of my goals is to see us grow our number of scholarships. We gave away 50 last year. I want to grow that uh, by 20%. I want to give away 60 this year. And I want to, you know, create a continuation between the representatives and the senators that are currently in place and the past. Um, Senator James Harvard is a great example of someone who has a wealth of knowledge and experience and when I decided to run, I reached out to him, and he was happy to support me. Well, there are other representatives and senators who they're no longer elected, but they have that experience that they could share with current caucus members, and I want to bring all of that together in one place uh, so that we can all benefit from that information. How does the uh, the Black Caucus interact with other caucuses? 
I assume that there are other representative caucuses within the legislature. Um, how do you interact with those caucuses in terms of uh, getting legislative uh, agendas pushed through or working to cooperate and, and find, find some way to be productive? That's a great question. Um, there's a Jewish caucus, there's a Hispanic caucus, there's a, a women's caucus even, and there's an opportunity for the black caucus to continue working with those groups. You know, we do uh, an annual event with the Hispanic caucus every year um, to close out uh, session, the Sine Die Party. And, um, you know, we want to get more into policy. And I'll share with you that when you look at the Democratic caucus, we're 38 members strong right now out of 120. Um, take that as you will. But we're going to grow those numbers under Representative Cruz coming up here. Um, but we actually make up 20 of the 38 members in the Democratic caucus right now when you look at the House. So we have kind of a, a majority uh, number of uh, black representatives that make up the Democratic caucus. So to some extent, um, when you look at policy or anything that you want to get passed, um, dealing with the black caucus would be important because we make up the majority of the Democratic caucus. So flexing those muscles in the future is going to be important, I think, to me and to all the other caucus members. But, you know, before we become black folks uh, in the legislature, we're Democrats. And, you know, 38 strong, we need to go that closer to 50. So expect that we'll be working within the caucus to do some really good things for the party. Well, Representative Darren, you, you were just recently awarded uh, something by USF called the 2015 Joy, Joyce Russell Kente Award, um, and mm -hmm. my family happened to be there. My my brother, Dr. Brookins, my sister, Carol, and my mother, and they, they they told me about the event and how pleasant it was. So can you tell our audience what, what is this award and what does it mean to you? Well, um, i got to tell you, the um... – there's very few times, as you can tell, in my life that I'm at a loss of words. And, you know, when I first got the phone call from um, Albert Coleman to tell me that I was winning this award, I literally was speechless for about two minutes on the phone. Um, it, it's a tremendous honor that the President's African American Advisory Committee would consider me as worthwhile, uh, just worthy of winning an award like this. So um, it means everything. I mean, it's it's a tremendous honor for me as someone who, you know, came to Tampa to go to the University of South Florida. And, yes, while I accomplished a lot there, you know, I just figured I was just doing my duty by other students um, that put me in that, those positions back then. Um, and for 20, almost 20 years later to be remembered and recognized, it was, it was a really big deal for me and for members of my family. And, um, you know, I want to say thank you to everybody that thought me worthy enough to, to vote me in for that award. But it is an award that is given annually, um, two, two different versions of it, one for community leaders. So Chloe Coney received the Community Leadership Award, which she is more than deserving of, and um, one that's given to an alumnus of the university, and I won the Alumnus Award this year. Well, we certainly want to congratulate you for that. Now, I have Thank a question that, 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 that I hope that we're going to do have a lot of discussion on because I never met you before, sir, but I will tell you that when you posted information about House Bill 201 passing, you made a statement as a result of that, and I want to read that statement because, for me, that told me everything I ever need to know about you and that whatever you do in public service, I'll always support you because I have the same belief that you did. But let me read it. You said, um, what you said was, uh, government cannot fix all of our problems, but it can work to make things better for all citizens. For all the reasons we can criticize government, yesterday I saw what government can do when it is compassionate and responsive. 
this is the reason I ran for office. This is why we sacrifice time away from our families and friends to do something that will have an impact on people's lives, both today and in the future. Can you please share with our listeners what you mean and how it informs your approach to public service as an elected official in the state of Florida? Well, it's kind of like what I said in in the very beginning. Um, I don't really look at people's political affiliations and make a determination about them right away. I'll let somebody show me who they really are based off of their words and then, then their deeds before I make a decision about whether this person could be an ally or somebody that's just going to always be opposed to, to the things that I want to do. Um, during my campaign last year, there was a lot of rhetoric about you know me not being a good enough Democrat and who was a real Democrat and all this other stuff. Let me tell you something. That kind of uh, political politicking doesn't get anybody anywhere. It doesn't do any good for our communities when we've got mothers out there trying to put food on the table for their kids and fathers that are just trying to find work. You know, what's important to me are the people, and is government really doing what it needs to do to serve people? Because that's the only purpose that government has is to help people who may find themselves in a situation where they just can't help themselves at this particular point, and they don't need constant handouts, but they need a hand up. Uh, so, you know, we all want to have good streets. We all want to have great schools. So, yes, collectively, we need a government that can function and provide those things. But when you look at some of the services that people believe government is just supposed to give us, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I think that government serves a purpose, and so I don't believe it solves all of our problems. You know, when I look at the rash of shootings that's happening right here in East Tampa, you know, my concern is not what are the police going to do about this. It goes back to, you know what, what are we as individual people of this community going to do with our children to keep them off the streets, to take the guns out of their hands, to make sure that they're not getting in trouble. It's a multifaceted issue. You can't blame the police. You can't blame just the other kids. You can't blame just the churches. You can't. I, I could go on on the people you can't blame. At the end of the day, it comes back to all of us making a conscious decision that when we see a kid about to do something wrong, we're going to stop them. You know, my heart has always been with kids, which is why I've always coached. It's why I've always tried to mentor and do different things because somebody in my life did that for me, whether it was my dad or my uncles or even, you know, older friends that I hung out with. They always guided us. And so government is not supposed to be taking care of us. My wife is a school teacher. Too many people send their kids to school and think that the school teacher is going to teach them everything that they need to know, whether it's manners or how to dress. And unfortunately, the system is, I mean, just overloaded right now with good teachers that want to do the right thing, but they don't have the resources to be mom, dad, and teacher. So government can't solve all of our problems, but what it can do is be responsive when there is an issue. And when I brought this bill up and I talked to all the members of the House, I mean, believe me, I lobbied people individually. I lobbied them in the bathroom, in the mess hall. Everywhere we went, you'd hear me talking about this bill because it was that important you would be surprised by how many representatives says, you know what, my husband's a diabetic, my son's a diabetic, or, you know, I know about this situation and I want to do something. So government can be responsive, but it's not going to be responsible for every single issue that goes on in our life. Well, but that's, that's a great answer, sir. But I want to go further with this discussion about government because uh, I happen to believe that there are so many disparities in our society, whether they be uh, racial disparities or gender disparities or economic disparities. And I think what you're saying, and you can respond to this, is that government can somewhat be an equalizer in dealing with those disparities and, and, and making it making it. Uh, fair enough for people to get a fair chance, a fair opportunity to try to to make it, to try to survive. Absolutely it can and it should. 
I mean, when you have situations um, like just take the race problem in our country, I mean, this, this just didn't happen yesterday. This has been going on for hundreds of years. So it's not like, you know, there, we can wake up one day and 50 years later after legislation's passed, they give us the right to vote, and I say us as African Americans, or, or give us the right to be equal in all matters in this country, that everything is going to be fair. I think we just saw we're up in um, Live Oak. We had a group of students from Michigan come down, and they were visiting in a hotel, and they were called the N-word. I mean, so racism is still alive and going on in this country. So, yes, the government has a job and a responsibility to make sure that the playing field is equal for everybody, especially when it comes to government contracts, when it comes down to any kind of municipal bidding and those sort of things. Um, It has a right to turn around and make things equal and level that playing field. Absolutely. Uh, Representative Narain, I want to go a little bit further about about this whole thing about government because I I, I am – you know, I, I'm sometimes bothered and frustrated when I hear certain uh, elected officials talk about government as, as if it was something that was bad and not good good for the people, uh, especially mm-hmm. when our history tells us that throughout our history, gov- governor has been, to a great extent, the great equalizer and has, when needed, corrected problems that needed to be corrected within our own society. Uh, may not have always done it quickly, but eventually – those issues were addressed, and it was addressed to representative of government of the government who were acting with goodwill towards the people and with the understanding of their responsibilities and accountabilities. And I also want to say one other thing too that we can talk about is um, how do we educate the public about that they have accountability too in terms of how they interact with the government and holding their representatives accountable and voting when, uh, whenever it's time to vote to make sure that those people that are not acting in accordance with their uh, their desires or their, 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 their beliefs, then you vote against that person. So can, can you talk about the concept of government in this country, and, and especially those who speak ill of government? Yeah, you know, I, w- I would agree with some of the things that you're saying here. Um, I think it goes back into the early days of the Constitution and the founding of the nation when you talk about federal rights versus states' rights. You had to have a balance. Now, if you let the states tell it, you know, all these programs are wrong, you shouldn't have affirmative action, states knows what's best, states' rights all day. But then you listen and you look at what's happened. Most of the progress, especially when it comes to racial disparities in this country, the gains have been made by the federal government. So you've got to have those type of protections in place. great example is when uh, Governor Jeb Bush was governor go back to 2000, and he came up with the One Florida Initiative, which basically eliminated affirmative action preferences within government contracting and with college admissions. Now, at the time, there were people that says, oh, no, this is great. They're going to take the top 10% from all the high schools and allow them to go to any state college, you know, as long as they're the top 10% of their respective high school. Well, if you look at enrollment at the larger universities like U.S., Florida State, Enrollment for minorities specifically, because we say minorities a lot, and a lot of things over the years have gotten into that minority uh, category, but specifically for African Americans, you will see that enrollment is down 15 years later since the inception of this plan. So, you know, that was a states' rights initiative. That wasn't a federal initiative. So, yes, government has to remain, especially the federal government, the great equalizer for things like this um, when it comes down to disparate treatment. But in terms of accountability, someone asked me the other day, you know, where are you on term limits? And I I do believe in term limits. I don't think anybody should own a seat. 
I don't think that you should have a career necessarily in government where the only thing you've ever done in your life is hold, held an elected position because you don't have perspective. And that's some of the problem that you see in legislatures all across the, the country now. Um, we have people who are elected who've never had a real job. They came out of college. Maybe they worked for their mom or dad for a little bit, and then they ran for office. And they're making decisions. If you take the the, the example of the state of Florida, for the third largest state in the country. I, I mean, it's it's unbelievable sometimes when, you know, you consider that some of these people are as young as 23 years old. So it ties right back into voting. Is voting important? Yes. It always makes my skin crawl when I hear people say, oh, my vote doesn't count. It doesn't matter. I serve right now in the legislature with a gentleman who won his election by two votes, Jay Faint up in, in Jacksonville. Two votes. <laughs> It's, believe me when I tell you, your vote matters. In fact, we have a state senator and Senator Jeff Clemens who won his election a couple years ago by 17 votes. So, yes, every single vote does count. And you better believe that we deal with the repercussions of people not voting every day when you see bad policies come about. Sorry, I get a little preachy on this subject. <laughs> no, no. As far as I'm concerned, you can't get too preachy on this. Let me ask you something, because with that point of view that you just expressed, as an elected official and as the head of the minority caucus, the black caucus, do you all have voter education programs uh, and get-out-to-vote programs at all? Because voter education to me seems to be necessary in this state to be ongoing because we have to help people to make informed decisions when they vote on policy. Uh, How do you feel about that? Well, I think it's important for the Black Caucus to continue doing what we do every year. We have a State of Black Florida Week in which we put on workshops and we talk about things like voting. We talk about all of the hot-button issues that are going on at the time, whether it be health care or education. And the only problem that you have with this annual conference is that it's the most engaged people who attend. Um, getting the person who only votes in presidential election years because they believe that voting for the president is the most important thing that they can do, reaching that person is where the challenge lies for all the caucuses and for all the groups nationwide. Um, you know, quite candidly, there was a time in African-Americans' history where we voted based off of who our pastors and our ministers told us to vote for. You know, then we voted based off of who our parents told us to vote for. I mean, I registered as a Democrat when I was eligible to vote because my parents were Democrats. So it wasn't a matter of us really understanding at that time. It was just us doing what we were told to do. Well, there's too much information out there now. You know, we need to do a better job of educating our students, especially in the school system, about civics. You'd be surprised by how many kids don't understand how government works. And unfortunately, those kids grow up to be adults who don't understand how government works. So we have an obligation in the education system, but also with our respective fraternities and sororities, which I'm really proud to be a member of Kappa Alpha Psi, and I'm proud to be a part of the MPHC here in Tampa because, you know, every time there's a census count, we're a part of that. The Greek complete, we go out there and count folks and make sure that African Americans and minorities understand how important it is to be counted in the census. So it's up to civic groups and churches to make sure we're stressing the importance of voting and civic participation. We have about two and a half minutes left in the program. Is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't asked you? 
Um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, all I want to say is, you know, thank you to everybody who last summer came out there and, and supported me. Um, I know there were some people that, you know, they were unsure, maybe they didn't know me or what I stood for, and I hope that they've seen, um, you know, this past legislative session that, you know, my intent is to be a fighter for the people of District 61 and for the voiceless all around the state. Um, you know, this is not about me. I say this all the time. In fact, um, you know, the, the sacrifice that it takes to serve is, is tremendous. I'll share it with anybody who's out there thinking about running for office. But as long as you know that you're doing it for the right reasons and you're doing it for people who may not be able to represent themselves, it definitely is rewarding. So I just want to say thank you to everybody who supported me, who came out for me, who was there from the very beginning or even joined at the very end. Um, it's my intent not to let them down and to do everything I can to, to bring resources back to our district and represent them well in Tallahassee. Well, sir, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to extend to you from both my brother and myself an invitation to come back after the special session and give a report to the community. And any time you want to reach out to the community uh, on any issue, we'll be happy to provide you with this platform. Uh, to all of our listeners, uh, for those of you who didn't get a chance to listen live, you can listen on demand at blogtalkradio.com or iTunes or Facebook. And we really, once again, want to say thank you so much to uh, Representative Ed Narain for District 61, and we appreciate all that you're accomplishing and all that you're doing, and we wish you well. Thank you, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on, gentlemen. Have a great afternoon. You, you too, too, sir. Bye-bye.